The tube is warm now. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the continuation of American Graffiti on Mark's Movie Collection. I am Mark D, IT Guy Dad, and generally bad car nerd, and generally bad movie nerd. And this is um, a podcast where I talk about movies. And I've gone into such an extraordinarily deep dive into American Graffiti because this is my number one favorite movie. Not the best movie, not any kind of objective, you're wrong, I'm right thing. As far as that statement goes, it's more, this is my favorite movie. For more on that, you can listen to the episode previous, or you can even go all the way back to the mid-season update where I lay out my top three and talk about some stuff a little bit. But uh, please, by all means, go into the back catalog. It is freely available and uh, listen to your heart's content. If you haven't seen American Graffiti, I strongly recommend that you stop this right now and go watch it. I think in the last episode it was streaming or it wasn't. I'm not 100% right now. I'll try to do a little bit of research on that uh, before this goes out. And at the end of, or at the beginning of this, I might kind of pre-roll it. I don't think it's streaming on, on Netflix or any of those common ones. You know what? I, I have a cellular phone. I have the knowledge of, of the world at my fingertips. Let me just do another quick search on this. Uh, I know it's not on Netflix because I searched for that uh, a little while ago. Is it on Hulu? American Graffiti? No. I know that American Pies, all of them are on Netflix, so you can go and watch those. And those are a very different kind of movie, but maybe similar in some ways. Uh, fun. Fun coming-of-age movies. Perhaps American Graffiti is the proto-coming-of-age movie. Holy shit, that is just a, a kind of a, relevation that, a re revelation that just came to me. Um, okay. Let's see if it's on a premium channel, perhaps? Perhaps? Continue. Oh, no, I have to log in. Oh, God. All right, well, I can't log into that. So I'm going to assume it's not streaming anywhere, um, but it is available for rent, Google, Amazon, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there are several DVD releases, a Blu-ray release, the whole nine. So this is the continuation of American Graffiti or, or me talking about American Graffiti. Uh, if you're not going to watch the movie, stop listening to this episode. Go back and listen to the one just before it. Because this is going to be this is you're eating you're eating the, the the mashed potatoes right, but you left the meat, or vice versa. What you, whichever one you're eating by itself is just the mashed potatoes. Takes the other one to be the meat, meat and potatoes, right? That's a that's a cliche, right? Meat and potatoes, sure it is, but uh, yeah, go ahead and check out last episode if you haven't. And here we go with the continuation of American Graffiti. <laughs> All right, so we're back. XERB, blah, 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 blah. I don't know the, the words there. I might take that out. I, yeah, uh, but I don't know. Just my Wolfman Jack impression is not great. All right, baby, rock and roll. Right? I, I feel like I just I have too much, too much bass in the voice, right? Oh, saline nasal spray. All right, cool. 
So, last episode, we talked about editing of the movie. We talked about... Wait, did we? Shit. Oh, fuck. Pause. So, yeah, I think we talked about the editing, and we talked about the cars, and we talked about a couple of characters, the female characters primarily. You know, get that in there right at the top. We talked about... Mel's. We talked about kind of making the movie, and we talked about the music of the movie, which is super, super, super duper important, and has repercussions in the in the the context of the movie, like in in fiction as well as to us, to the audience, like the Greek chorus, right? Which uh, you know, the Greek chorus is kind of always there in Greek tragedies, but like they, they, they sing stuff or they say stuff that the actors kind of don't acknowledge, but the, or the characters, I should say, uh, the other characters in the play, but these characters do hear the same music that we hear. And that's, um, they hear what we hear. They hear the Wolfman that we hear. They hear the engine noises that we hear, the, you know, the, the squealing tires that we hear. They hear everything, the yells, the jeers, they hear it. So there's no, score to speak of there's no audience specific audio track to speak of here and that's cool but now we can talk about perhaps the the body of the movie even though all of those things are the body of the movie right so we could talk about i guess the main characters and i'm not going to go I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm a little congested and saline sprays are medium helpful. I probably need a better expectorant. But I'm not going to go and just run the movie chronologically. I'm actually going to jump around. And at this point, I think that going through uh, character by character is maybe the smarter move. I think. And you're, you can... You can grade me on that one, right? But I'm going to kick it off with uh, good old Ronnie Howard. And uh, he's plays Steve Bolander. Steve Bolander. I don't, I don't know how to say that. I've never seen that last name in life. But he plays Steve. And he is he's an all-American kid. He is a, a you know, good-looking, solid, clean-shaven Ginger, ostensibly, so maybe his parents hated him, maybe they didn't. Or, yeah, I guess, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what, what the ginger thing is about. But he's a redhead, or whatever Ron Howard was. Speaking of which, watching Ron Howard during the, the making of stuff, I can't help but think that Stephen King based his character of Bill Denbro on Ron Howard. Because uh, it came out in 85. I don't know when. I, I don't know. But that just kind of hit me. I've, I've read it a lot. So the casting of the movie doesn't really have an impact on me. I'm definitely caught in the gravity well of the book itself. Anyway. Going back to where we were going. Steve Bolander. All-American kid. Class president. Right, and this is before like being class president was shitty, because when I was in school, being class president, you fucking sucked. This is before that. This is before all that. This is when America was innocent. Being class president, participating—these were all good things. 
And I think it's kind of coming back around a little bit, but, you know, things take time. So, class president, going to college, dating the head cheerleader, right? He's got good grades. He's got status. He's going to college back east, quote unquote. Back east isn't a thing that we say east. We say out west, perhaps. But maybe those are just the, the differences, right? That doesn't make anyone better or worse. He's got a cool car. You know, he's, he's set up for everything. This is the ballad of Steve Belander. He's so confident. He just, he's like, hey, Terry, just take care of my car for months. You know, what, what about your mom or dad, dude? Like, can your parents take care of your car? I mean, I, it seems like he doesn't give a fuck. And he's like, well, Terry will be fine. You know, 30 weight Castrol op, which 30 weight oil is like a fucking sludge. Uh, you know, now, anyway. But, I mean, he's got a, a 327, or, you know, at least that's what that's what Terry says, right? And I, I believe Terry, because Terry can't lie up and not prove that lie, I think, even though he can and he does. Um, so thinking about it, maybe it doesn't have a 327, but I'm going to assume that it does. So that's a new motor. So I guess he's got money, right? He's like, fuck it, my car, whatever. Just take it, no big deal. He's got a scholarship, but he's kind of full of himself. You know, he's uh, he's feeling pretty okay about telling Lori that he wants to see other people while he's away at college. You know, and he sells the whole, it'll strengthen our relationship thing. And then his fucking, uh, his friend whose name I don't remember, he's like, oh yeah, we're going to see other people, you know. And that guy's like, oh, and screw around. And he's, you know, he smiles. He's like, well, yeah, you know. So he's, he's, he's full of himself, but he is the big man on campus. Every, every experience that Steve has had has been to reinforce how great he is, ultimately, kind of, at this point. Not everyone, not all of them, but a lot of them, especially socially, you know? At the hop, he just he tells off the teacher, just hop tells him off, and he's like, I don't care, I graduated. Fuck you. And the teacher's just, like, destroyed. He destroyed that teacher. He fucking wrecked him. I think there's a longer take of that one somewhere, but he fucking destroyed him. So he's a fucking, he's a bit of a douchebag, but he, 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 he really does care for Lori. Uh, and it's interesting because, uh, smoke gets in your eyes at the dance. It's a, it's, it's one of those Greek chorus kind of things. And they have to dance because of social pressures. She's like, oh, Steven, just smile. Pulls him close, like pinching him. And they start talking. And this is a scene that uh, Cindy Williams and, and Ron Howard actually screen tested with. And I like it. I love this scene. I love this scene a lot because, you know, it starts out one way and it ends the other. And you understand more about the context of Steve. Steve was... Prior to dating Lori, uh, maybe more sexually timid and things like that. And she kind of goes through this and he's like, oh, fuck, you're right. But like he also is remembering all of these good times and, and all of this stuff. They are both kind of getting wrapped up back in this, this memory of their relationship. And they, they kind of wipe clean the incident from Mel's where he's like, I'm going to see other people. And... There's kind of like a war between can I be a douchebag or do I really love this girl, right? Because I think he really does, at least at some some level, right? You know, maybe 
most levels, but not fully, right? There's the thing about the ego. His ego is huge. So something's got to give. And the ego gets the best of him at the canal. And he he kind of... I don't want to say he's like strong arms Lori, but he's kind of like uh, trying to convince her just to have sex with him. And apparently she's never had sex. She's still a virgin. And he probably is too. And ostensibly, a lot of people were. And having sex, um, you know, maybe even a teenage serious relationship might not have been quite as common. So, you know, there's other things that factor into that. But, you know, maybe there's also a bit of a, a change in, in how, how and what the values were. This predates the, the free love of the 60s and things like that. So, Lori's not into it and she tells him no and he's like no come on and he tries to you know like guilt her and shit like that and she's like get the fuck out she just tells him to get the fuck out kicks him i think he, she literally kicks him out of the vehicle right like propels him out and he's like on the floor like oh fuck and she drives off and that is fucking great because you know she's not this like oh help me damsel she is kind of taking charge of the situation you know, that, that shit doesn't play. Get the fuck out. That is a wonderful take, especially for a young woman who was, you know, maybe uh, in fiction time a couple of hours ago, like, destroyed and just trying to figure out a way to keep him. You know, like, she's already at, a, at, a, at an emotional disadvantage in that she feels like she's been rejected, right? But then when that kind of thing comes up, she's just like, get the fuck out. So, despite her, you know, desire to, to be with this, like, this rock star, she's just like, no, not okay. Not fucking okay. And, you know, this, this probably comes from, from Gloria and, and Bill, because they actually wrote most of Steve's storyline. You know, uh, George kind of gave them, like, this is the, the arc, maybe, that we want, or whatever. This is the trajectory. And Gloria and Bill did all of the trigonometry, trigonometry, not trigonometry, that, that's something else, trigonometry, to get him there. So they essentially landed Steve on the moon for George. But, you know, Steve kind of uh, wanders off a bit and, and he, he, he starts to maybe redeem himself from douche number one. He starts to understand that you know, maybe Laurie is a person too and, and things like that. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot to it. Uh, relationships are complicated. And as you spend time together, you build that history together. And that's, that's something that we can, we can see the end results in this movie, but we can never have that experience. So, you know, you have to put some weight on it for the character, or at least I would. I assume that Steve is, is not fucking happy with this at all and I, I really genuinely think that it's more his ego than anything right so he ends up getting hit on by uh buddha who's a, a car hop at mel's and you know she's just like no it'll be just for fun it's fine whatever but like she plays it pretty innocent but he knows and and she's communicating it um kind of non-verbally uh I, I don't know if they used to date Perhaps that is what it is. 
because she says just for fun as opposed to for work. You know, I guess maybe they just they had a relationship and she's like, no, I don't, I'm not trying to get back into a relationship for you. It's casual. Right. But she gives them the eyes and, 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 and everything. And so much so that. That Lori has come back to Mel's to look for Steve to apologize. And she sees this conversation and she's just like, what an asshole. He's going to bone this chick. Like, that's how. How serious that that communication was, and I think anybody watching the movie can can read that. So she's off, and you know Steve then is like, no, no, you know what, Buddha, it's 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 not it's not okay. I have to have to do some stuff. He he lets her down gently, but you know ultimately he didn't he didn't feel right about it. Um, in that his motivation right now is not, oh, I'm just trying to get laid. That's not. Maybe that's not what Steve thinks of life, right? That's not the, he's not putting it on a pedestal. And he, he, he really prefers the, the relationship that he had with Lori. And I don't know if he's still thinking that he can recover that. I think he is, but I hope he is optimistically, but either way, he's, he's, he's a little too down. He then hears that she's riding around with Bob Falfa and, and well, these two girls walk in and they're like, where's Lori? I know where she is. We know where she is. They're just these two girls that are being jerks because Steve and Lori are like the people to take down in the high school, right? They are Mr. and Mrs. Perfect or Mr. and Miss Perfect, I should say. So you kind of read that from this interaction where these two girls are like, well, she's riding with a really cute guy in a really boss car. His name's Bob Falfa. And then, you know, Steve is like, fuck that. I'm going after her. I, I, I want to keep her. You know, he goes out to Paradise Road and, and you know, after the crash, he's like, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you. And he decides to stay with Lori and go to junior college, I would assume. His card at the end is that it says that he's an insurance agent living in Modesto, which is the same town in fiction that the movie was filmed in. And... You know, this tells me a couple of things. This tells me that that Steve is is risk averse, right? He's not trying to go out there and make waves. Um, you know, maybe he is disappointed with his life. Maybe he peaked in high school, right? Is the the term for that? But that he has genuine feelings for Lori. That he genuinely wants to stay with her. That he he likes being with her. Um, and ultimately. Like, realistically, real talk, he knew the whole time that the seeing other people thing was not, it was not going to work. He was just like, oh, I'm going to try to fuck. I'm going to feel okay about it, right? Uh, Lori was a lot more insecure about that, but that's also normal. Distance and youth are usually not a good combination. So, he kind of Ron Howard says that knowing, having the foreknowledge that Steve would end up being an insurance salesman uh, informed his performance as Steve. You know, he says that uh, Steve's not going to go out there making big changes or, or taking huge risks or anything like that. But he, uh, he seems to redeem himself. And that is how we leave the ballad of Steve. Almost like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Not really. Not at all. Um, I had come across fucking 
something in this train of thought and I forgot what it was, I will ignore it and I will come back around. But right now, what we can do is we can talk about the tragedy of Terry. Terry the Toad Fields is an abject nerd. He seems generally hated, even by his friends a little bit, which is odd. He seems like a fairly okay guy, by all accounts, but we only live with him for one night. He could be one of those people whose um, maybe social ability is grating, but he seems to be kind of on the ball on that. He seems to be able to read the room, so I don't know. He definitely has a poor self-image and low self-esteem, you know? And uh, Terry himself may perpetuate Terry the Toad Fields, right? The image of Terry the Toad Fields. But he gets to uh, he gets to he gets to roll around in Steve's boss Impala, you know. He wants to be a baller, shot collar, twenty inch blades on the Impala. And once he gets Steve's wheels, things start to change for him a little bit. Um, you know, right away he's like, "Hey Buddha, you wanna you wanna hang out with me?" Uh, I have a great record collection. I even have Pledging My Love by Johnny Ace, right? So, already we're understanding how music was different back then. If you're trying to pick up a girl by saying, I have an awesome record collection, like, the fuck does that mean, right? Because we have music available to us at our demand, at our fingertips. We command fucking information to come down from space pull it literally from the air and and bend it to our will but back then it was a little different you know like in fight club they say the things that you own end up owning you well people owned huge record collections of hundreds of albums not to say that they don't now but it was more common back then because that's the only way that you could hear the fucking song you wanted to hear so when he's like i even have pledging my love by johnny ace i was like okay this this is a song that somebody fucking recognizes, and I'm assuming it to be some fucking badass, like, yeah, rock and roll, rock and roll, baby. Right, Wolfman shit. This song is not rock and roll. I mean, maybe, like, chicks dug it for makeouts, but I, I'm not super interested in it. It did not, the style of it did not capture me, did not speak to me. So, just already we're, we're getting an indication of how things are different uh, and then how they are different for him. No one else ever in the movie is like, oh, come over. I have a great record collection. We can listen to them. That, that never happens again. Um, you know, but getting Steve's Impala is probably the first bit of good luck he's ever had. But instead of taking it home and putting it away and being like, yes, friend Steve, I will... I will care for your car, right? He goes cruising. And he's not qualified. He's he's not qualified. He's his he's his ego is wildly inflated. Um he's nervous. Um you know, I don't know. I don't know. He's weak arms heavy. And he tries to race one dude, right? And he jumps the light. And I think this is the same dude that that takes him down with a savage fucking burn, right? Where he's like, he revs him up or something. He's like, what you got in there, kid? And the guy's like, more than you can handle. 
right? Which is the precursor to uh, what's the retail of one of those? More than you can afford, pal. Ferrari, right? So I should talk about the Fast and the Furious at some point, not the franchise, because I I generally don't give a shit about how many are there? Eight now? Fate? Yeah, eight, uh, six of those movies. But I've seen two of them a lot, being the first one and the third one. So when you hear this guy say more than you can handle, that is like the, the people watching Fast and Furious are like, I've seen American Graffiti. I'm going to steal a line, make it my own. And it is more than you can afford, more than you can afford, pal. Ferrari, like the the dumbest fucking line in the world, and then smoke them, right? But anyway, fucking total. It, it's not a total tangent. It's a tangent. So he gets burned to a savage crisp, then tries to race this guy, jumps the light, right? It was a turn light. It was, it was a, the turn arrow. So he's like, oh no! And so then he backs up, and then it's still in reverse. And then he hits the car behind him. And that is especially funny. I will I will tell you a couple stories. Um, oh, just one story, actually. So I took my Mustang to a, an eighth mile drag strip. And I called all my friends. I'm like, hey, I'm going to the drag strip tonight. You want to come? Because, you know, people are like, yeah, let's go to the strip. And everybody bails on me. They're like, no, I'm busy. No, no, no. So I'm there alone. And I'm already nervous um i don't generally go places just to hang out alone that's not that's not my look fellow i'll stay the fuck home so i'm kind of nervous uh you know the whole thing with the car and like what if it blows up and I'm, I'm fucking here in the middle of nowhere and fucking you know you go you, you do your burnout right i didn't need any safety equipment it was eighth mile and, and the car was stock it wasn't gonna fucking blow anybody's doors off I just kind of wanted to go out there and, and see what was what. Man, it was so rough. Uh, there was one point where I tried to do the burnout and I left the traction control on. That was embarrassing. Um, I had the windows up because you're supposed to and you're supposed to have the AC off. And I'm pretty sure I heard the announcer making fun of me. Um, and that's maybe something I'll never live down. But I felt exactly how Terry felt or Terry felt how I felt or some... There, there's some uh, sympathy there, or some being a lot, right? Because we're kind of we're kind of vibing in being fucking dorks. So, you know, it's just like that one hit home. This this movie hits home on a very personal level. Um, but eventually he gets out of there. He just fucking tells off the one dude he crashed into, and but you know, cars were actual fucking tanks back then. There weren't five mile per hour bumpers. There were like twenty mile per hour bumpers, but they would massacre any pedestrian you came across so that's one of the reasons why cars look different today just so you know is that they they have to not kill pedestrians because they would all the time before like every time 100 percent is like oh i saw a car driving it killed me versus now where it's like oh it fucking broke my leg or destroyed my leg or hip or whatever but i'm alive so that's one of the reasons cars look different um Especially BMWs. BMWs maybe got hit particularly uh, hard by that. They have that weird, like, down nose thing or whatever. So he cruises off, man, and he's just hitting Third Street, hitting it hard. And he sees a girl on the street, and she's dressed very cute, and she seems very pretty. But she is alone. She is alone. She is 
vulnerable and there is a carload of of men like jeering at her and she's just like trying to ignore not making eye contact shaking her head declining you know any offer and terry sees her and he's like what a babe what a bitch and babe and interesting was in the script he uh he prays to wolfman here and that's just wild but he doesn't in the movie and he goes and and he he kind of he, he he picks her up it's the car and and he's he's kind of being himself he's just he's being a nice guy hey you know does anybody tell you you look like connie stevens and she's like for real like she perks up at that it's not like somewhere like hey baby i'll show you a good time or any of that you know nasty jeering gross kind of behavior but she's like oh i always thought i looked like sandra d and then she's like wow tuck and roll pro street can lay rubber all the stuff she's really interested in the car she likes the car so probably mostly the car but i optimistically the nerd in my heart likes to think that terry being terry contributed to to this now the interesting thing was how how he puts on a huge front he starts to be like oh i have i have a jeep four by four hunting ponies right like he, he puts on a little bit of a, a money and power kind of front where he, he he kind of amplifies those things about him extraordinarily because he's the most fucking mild-mannered person on the planet least of all the one with 90 guns shooting animals or bear as, as he even puts it um at one point but he saw her in need of of rescuing he saw her as a damsel in distress but i think ultimately she rescues him because she was she was not in distress uh debbie is as i mentioned you know a very independent experienced and and worldly i guess may, might be the word for that woman so she's kind of the initiator of of terry's storyline actions right she's like oh let's go get brew right and then they fucking see the robbery and all that stuff but you know terry uh before then he he, he kind of gets put in his place a couple times you know with like the creep that shows up at mel's he's like you know, I have, you know, the, the, the lady obviously doesn't want it. He's like, hey, Crete, you want a knuckle sandwich? And he's like, no, thanks. You know, waiting for my double chubby chuck. So he's not physically going to, like, fight anybody because he knows that that's not his thing. But he's not, you know, like, Debbie ultimately defuses that situation. She fucking likes a match and throws it at the guy. I don't know if that's like an insult or if she was legitimately trying to light him on fire, but I'd be fine with either. You know, but it's one of those things too where where she also is like, yeah, you know, this is not a friend of mine. He's like, oh, friend of yours, right? Which, you know, 1962 euphemisms. And, you know, she's like, not a friend of mine. He's just horny, right? So ostensibly she had some type of relation with him. You know, because he's like, I'll call you one night when I'm hard up. Um, But she's not, like, denying it. Like, no, I didn't sleep with him. Like, I'm not a slut. That's not that's not what she's saying. She's just like, no, he's he's gross and he's horny and that's all he wants. And then she says, that's why I like you. You you, you have uh, brains. You're a nice guy. You're not like these other people who are just motivated by just, like, getting laid. So 
you know, they go off and they, they go to the liquor store or the, the convenience store, which has liquor, I should say. And Terry has a hard time, but eventually a guy's like, I got you. And he robs the store. He runs out, tosses the bottle. And the shop owner is like coming out, shooting a shotgun at him or uh, probably a 38, actually, if memory serves. But it's like a gunfight and a robbery. And this is these this is one of those stories that you have in high school. Like, oh, my God, that night of the dance. It was so crazy. This is one of those stories. It's like a, it's like the myth, right? I, I, I have a few of those. I have a friend who has many of those stories and they are wonderful, not about getting shot at or anything, but in general. And, you know, uh, everybody's kind of having a good time and then they have sex and that's a really big thing for Terry. Um, but eventually he needs to, to kind of own up to his, his lies. They steal Steve's car. He finds the car, gets well, throws up everywhere. Finds the car, gets the crap kicked out of him. Gets saved by John. Um, but ultimately he's a nice guy. You know, Debbie. Debbie lets him off real easy, and she's like, you know, if I'm not doing anything, give me a call tomorrow. I don't know what the fuck that means, but I think that's a uh, please call me. So they may or may not continue to see each other, and and you know she's a great girl, definitely out of his league. So, you know, he eventually kind of, I think he gets more confidence there and instead of being asked, he offers to go with John to Paradise Road more as a sidekick. He's not trying to be big man on campus. He's not trying to be Steve, but I think he feels better about being Terry, right? And I mean, I don't know that he was a virgin, but I'm just assuming, I'm projecting, maybe. You know, he could have gone to band camp, for all I know. Now that I think about it, I was just kind of running that back in my head, and I was like, ah, maybe he's not a virgin. Because we don't get any American Pie-style, like, humor. But it feels like he is, so who knows? But he goes off with Milner and, you know, he's having like a kind of like an upswing, but he hangs his success on, on Milner also, which is like, ah, oh, Terry, back in your own pattern. And the tragedy, the tragedy of Terry Fields or Terry the Tiger, as he likes to call himself, uh, Terry the Toad, as others call him, or just Toad, which is unfortunate. He is missing in action in Vietnam. And that was... I don't know that it was necessarily that real person. I don't know that it was perhaps Lucas saying, I stopped being a fucking nerd. I think that I think that could have been somebody or somebody's. It could have been people that they knew who got drafted up and, and went to Vietnam. I think Vietnam was still ongoing in 73 as well, uh, during the, 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 the making of this Vietnam War. The war in Viet fucking Nam. 
Yeah, Follow Saigon is 75. So, I mean, that could have been almost uh, the movie's in-fiction documentary protest of the Vietnam War. That this guy, this mild-mannered dude, went to Vietnam, went to a fucking jungle to fight a war against an enemy he's never seen. So there's a lot to that. There's a lot of feelings there, especially people of that age, right? And, you know, that's all I can say about that. But I think here we can get into the, the legend of John Milner. And I think the legend of John Milner has... He's, he's older than the rest of the group. He's older than the rest of the group, and... He's like low key upset that that Kurt and Steve are are heading off to college, right? And he kind of you know blows a gasket. Uh, see what I did there? Uh, it's called a rim shot. He blows a gasket, and he's like, "Well, you go off to fancy college, curtsy baby. I'll be here having fun as usual." And Kurt tells him, you can't stay 17 forever. And I think that is a thesis of the legend of John Milner. It's that you can't stay 17 forever. Maybe in a more modern turn of phrase, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. So he's friends with, with these younger folks. He's, he's not threatening to them. He's not aggressive too much. You know, perhaps he's kind of like a mentor. You know, he probably helps Steve swap the motor in his car and stuff like that. Because he's a mechanic. Um, but like school and, and other institutions probably didn't work out for him. You know, he's like, oh, you're going to the hop? That's for kids, the freshman hop. You know, he probably didn't have a good time being in school unless he was breaking all the rules. Uh, you know. He's like, uh, you know, the, you won't, you remember all the good times you won't be having as if going to college precludes any enjoyment. He is strongly independent to the, the point of just consistent rebellion, uh, exhibited constantly in his being pulled over by the cops and, you know, even modifying your car and stuff like that is a form of rebellion. And I think I kind of just figured out, you know, male adolescence is is just rebellion top to bottom in every different way so i cracked the code so that's it so call call somebody just tell them we figured out you know male adolescence but you know he's still he he's never really got out of it and i know people who are just rebellious top to bottom and it can be it can be difficult you know but i i know people that are not too unlike John Milner. He's, you know, super invested in his car. The, the car is the projection of himself. No, no rule is going to like hold him back. Um, and he substitutes his, you know, perhaps mediocre image, self image. He's like, I'm just some bum mechanic, you know, from this town. I probably didn't graduate from high school. Maybe I did barely. 
and he substitutes that for the car's prestige and and people come up to him and are like hey man you got the fastest car in the valley all the time and people know milner's deuce coupe right as the hot rod is his his deuce coupe is the most iconic hot rod in cinema it is the most iconic hot rod in modesto you know so he also maybe kind of thinks that he's a stud kind of like his car is a stud he has relationships a little bit like he has races, you know, one and done type things, uh, you know, very casual and, you know, cruising is the mechanism for, for picking up girls for him. He does have the cool, you know, awesome yellow car and, you know, by extension, he is cool and awesome. So, you know, he kind of runs into some chicks and I was like, anybody want to ride around with me and whatever. And Carol shows up. And Carol is the antithesis of John Milner, almost. She is the anti-macho plotline. Because up until now, he's he's pretty macho. He's not overly macho, but he's pretty macho. You know, white t-shirt. Stella! You know, streetcar, cigarettes in the sleeve. He was expecting to to bag some, like, you know hot 17 year old or whatever but instead he gets like a 12 year old and that's not okay in that he's not okay with it he's without any pre in a vacuum john milner is the most decent guy and he's not gonna you know uh prey on a 12 year old but but he's in the situation now where where her sister leaves her with him some fucking rando, by the way. Her sister is a huge piece of shit. Left her fucking 12-year-old little sister with some random guy. With And, like, gone. Like, they are fucking gone. And he's just like, what the fuck do I do now, right? This is not what he wants, and he's trying to get her out. But the thing about Carol is that despite uh, their age difference, she is, she is very sharp, and she is, you know, maybe... Uh, cooler she's than her years let on right she's kind of ahead of the game on that and you know she like wants to kind of be cool and kind of be grown up and riding around in a cool car but he does everything to i mean he doesn't do everything to invalidate that that's not his point his point is you're 12 and this is weird because i don't I don't really know you and your sister's gone and all these things. And what are the implications of the situation? Right. He hides her at one point. Somebody's like, Hey John, he's like, Oh fuck, get down. Right. And then, uh, you know, uh, a friend of his shows up and he has to explain, Oh, I'm babysitting and she gets pissed off. Uh, you know, cops pull him over. I was with my cousin at the movies, you know, so there's a lot going on there, uh, between them. Not between them, like, sexually, but between them, like, these are, are two characters that are very opposite. And they are put together almost like uh, perfect strangers. Like, one is Balki Balkopolis or whatever, and the other guy is Larry or whatever his name was. But, you know, he's, 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 he's that guy. Like, he knows Holstein the cop by name. Holstein knows him by name, sight, and sound, you know he has a personal vendetta against Milner for something. And he's like, I know it was you on G street and writes him a ticket for, um, his license plate 
light being out, which I don't even think it is actually in the movie. I don't know that they went so far as to unscrew it, but I think that it is functional and Holstein is just a piece of shit. Milner hands the ticket over to Carolyn and he says, uh, file that under CS. And she's like, what does that stand for? And he says, chicken shit. That's what it is, right? So she unclips the little pouch because it wasn't a glove box. It was a 1932 car. They don't have boxes, right? Or they can't manufacture the plastic for that or whatever limitations. So it's a little pouch. Unsnaps it. It's full of tickets for garbage, right? So she just stuffs it in there. But that's, this is the guy that we're talking about, right? With a 12-year-old. What the, what the fuck is going on? Or 13-year-old, maybe. But he's not a bad guy. He, he wants to get off the street, like, because, you know, who knows what's going to happen. He takes her to, to a junkyard, right? Which they call the automobile graveyard. I think it's called the graveyard, perhaps, in the scene selection. And Milner, we learn here, is is ultimately a romantic. He he looks at a lot of things with uh, very rose-colored glasses, if you will. He accomplishes a couple of things during this uh, journey to the junkyard. He is able to kind of keep Carol entertained and engaged while being off the street so nobody sees them. He also goes to a place that I think that I think makes him feel better. Um, he sets up a lot of stuff about him by fully and deeply understanding the history of all of these crashed cars. You know, there's one that he points out, that was the fastest car in the valley. I never got to race him, you know, things like that. Um, he sets up the risk of, of street racing, which is a real risk. I don't want to. I don't want to promote street racing because anytime there's a risk that's uh, not mitigated, you know, people can get hurt. Uh, I know people that who have been hurt street racing. I don't. I don't street race. I like cars. I like fast cars and things like that. But it's a little different. Um, I take the safety aspect of things a lot more seriously now, um, or at least in my older age, I've taken it safe. Uh, you know, pretty serious for a while because. I know what it's like to not be able to walk, and I never want to experience that ever again in my life. Uh, but now I have a son as well. I have a child, and I would I would hate to to have something happen to me where you know he grows up without me. So this movie it simultaneously glorifies it and and tells you don't do it, but. It's more the former than the latter. So I just wanted to, I wanted to inject that in there, uh, to be clear. Don't, don't street race. It's not worth it. But yeah, he, he goes down the list and there's other cars that he's raced and won or whatever the case is, but we see that he lives in this history almost. When he goes through there and he knows the junkyard dog. So I don't know if he works at the junkyard or if he's just there so much. If you've ever seen Born to Run with Richard Grieco, which is totally a movie I should do, you'll understand that, especially back then, there were a lot of good parts that you could get from the junkyard. I don't think that um, 
so eBay wasn't a thing. eBay has fucked everything over. Um, every used item is now just expensive because that's what it sells for on eBay, quote unquote. But that's what people have it listed for on eBay. It's not what it's selling for. So it's it's a, it's a very different um, it's a very different time. And, and junkyards were actually places where you could get you know uh, rear end gears from a motorhome that would fit your Ford nine inch, right? And you could just swap those into your car, and instantly you've got a faster car. Things like that. Um, so there were reasons for somebody like John to be at the junkyard, if anything, getting parts for other people doing things. Um, but anyway, they've got a good rapport going, you know, and then Carol gets a water balloon thrown at her and the scene was wonderful. Um, that's one of those scenes where it was a mistake and George loved it and left it in the movie. She was supposed to be angry because the water balloon wasn't supposed to hit her in the face, but it hits her in the face. And she's laughing. And they're like, this is perfect, right? Like, you're so angry, but it's funny. So they have that common enemy, right? And that only bonds them closer. They they put shaving cream all over the car. Um, you know, and, and Carol tells them, like, stop, uh, pull them up at the light, and we'll, we'll put shaving cream all over the windshield. And she's comfortable enough to call the shots with him, and he's comfortable enough to, to follow, which is a thing that, that John Milner does not do. So it's one of those things where you're, you're seeing this relationship and it's not a sexual relationship because John is not a fucking creep, but it's still a relationship between two characters and it is, it is, you know, real in its way. So they're becoming friends at the very least. And, you know, he, he kind of opens up, lets her in, you know, he talks to her about the graveyard. They have this thing. He's not a dick and like, no, I'm not going to do what you tell me. And she ends up, you know, Bob Falfa shows up and, and she start he starts talking shit about, you know, his car says, is, is that piss yellow? What, what's the color of your car, man? Piss yellow or peak green or, you know, whatever. The, you know, that can't be the fastest car in the valley. You got to sneak up on the pumps or no, that can't be the fastest car in the valley. That's got to be your mama's car. And then Milner tells Falfa. Bob Falfa played by Harrison Ford, by the way. Harrison Ford was uh, a carpenter at this time, and, and George Lucas asked him to come back or something thereabouts to be Bob Falfa. But um, he had had some movies before now. I think he did Guns of Navarone, and uh, I should have looked that up. So he was in Guns of Navarone, as far as I recall, because I saw that. And I'm like, what the fuck is Harrison Ford doing in here? Or was it Guns of Navarone 2? I mean, was there two? I don't even know. Um, but yeah, he was in stuff. He was in stuff, but he had like uh, smaller parts. So was he in Guns of Navarone after? Or am I just Force 10 from Navarone is what he was in. Okay, that was way after. That was in 78. Well, that movie looked like it was filmed in fucking 70. So never mind. He was also in the conversation. Interesting. <clears throat> so the conversation is definitely a movie I should watch. Uh, but he had done some TV and some smart, uh, some smart, some small parts and stuff like that. And they bring him into the movie kind of against his will. But he does it so perfectly. He had, he had long hair and in the seventies, people had long hair. He's supposed to have a crew cut. So this is another example of the actors bringing something to the movie that um, enriches it, right? That makes it better, right? So he didn't want to cut his hair. 
but you can't have that long 70s hair in 1962 because they'll, you know, they they had like pompadours and, 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 you know, duck butt haircuts and stuff like that. Fucking Terry's haircut is insane because it's a crew cut on top and long on the sides. It doesn't even make sense. But fucking Harrison Ford is like, I'll wear a white cowboy hat. And it fucking works. You believe Bob Falfa top to bottom with that fucking cowboy hat. So, you know, Carol sticks up for him. You know, she is, she feels like John and her are, are more united, you know? And I, I kind of relate this to, to my dog and it's going to sound weird, but, uh, my wife and I, we got a dog as a gift, a puppy, if you will, very young. She was, uh, maybe three months old at the time. And she was pretty cool with, with me and her, but she instantly bonded with my wife more. And it would be that she would bark at me all the time and she would never turn her back to me. I didn't see the back of that dog for almost a year. And, and I started to feel like, oh my gosh, she hates me. Right. But then one day she just kind of sits on me. Like she, she up sitting on the couch. She, she comes over, kind of sits on my lap and kind of turns around and she's, her back is completely to me just one day from the next. It just like clicked with her. Like I'm not trying to eat you. I'm part of your family. And then now she will put her back to me and to have her front facing, you know, other people, even other family, because she just doesn't see them that much. So this is kind of that, right? Um, when she sticks up for him, she's like protecting him. She, she put her back to, to Milner to face the exterior threat of Falfa. I mean, not in the violence type of threat, but just, you know, sociological, right? And that was really, that was really cute. And that was really interesting. Um, you know, and, and, and John and Falfa kind of get at it a little bit in the street and she's like, wow, he's fast. And, and John says, yeah, but he's stupid. Right. And that's like, again, that is the dangers of street racing. They were in the middle of town, right? They were on quote unquote, the main drag. So that setup is there. And, um, after that, he finally figures out how to get Carol to tell him where she lives because that's what she's been doing. She hasn't, she's reduced, uh, she's not reduced, but no excuse you use can reduce the ruse. So we'll go to the ruse room as, uh, as Luke who's talking likes to use. We'll, we'll be in the ruse room where he understands that she doesn't want to go home because she wants to be out, be an adult and have a, or at least a teenager and have a good time. And he's like, well, let's see if that's what she's really going for. So he pretends to come on to her. And it, it's like creepy, but not aggressive. And the ruse works, right? He calls her bluff. She's, she's precocious. She, she wants to be adult. She wants to be mature and have these experiences. But she doesn't know about sex. She doesn't know about what that is. She's still very much a child. So she's like, I'll tell you where I live. It's, it's over here. It's easy. I'll, I'll show you how to get there. And he's like, okay. And it's a really sweet ending, you know. He he gets her home safe, and 
you know, she had uh, wanted his shift knob. She's like, oh, it's cool, you know? And he, he lets her have it. And she's just like, you know, can I have something to remember you by? And he's like, sure, kid, take the shift knob. And it's just, it's a really sweet ending. He's, she, you know, see you around is what she says. And she runs off. And I get the feeling that they'll never see each other again, even in a small town. But perhaps in 1962, this is the, their version of the random hookup, right? So, so then after that, they, they head out to Paradise Road, right? Um, John is becoming increasingly serious, increasingly somber, stoic after saving Terry. And, um, they head out to Paradise Road together and they race and it is, remember how I told you that the movie's like, Hey, drag racing is bad. But it's also good. This is this is good drag racing. This is good street racing. This is a street straight road. Fields on both sides. No fucking safety though. There's fucking it's like an embankment on both sides. And they're playing Booker T and the MGs, Green Onions. And that is That is one of the the most visceral reactions I can get. From a song, because I'm programmed by this movie. Um, Rumble by Link Ray and his Raymond is also kind of similarly up there, right? And as one of those iconic kind of moment, kind of song, kind of associations. They're racing. They race. Terry flags them off. Lori's riding with Mil uh, Falfa because she is being prideful and she refuses to get out and run back into Steven's arms or whatever the case is. As, as people are wont to do, people are complicated, and even though they want to do the thing, they won't out of some spite or some fear, maybe fear of being rejected again, as she was already. Anyway, they're racing, and Bob Falfa crashes, and the car rolls over. And Lori's in the car. Steve gets there, drives up to the crash scene. John pulls his car over, runs over. Steve is getting Lori out of the car. She seems okay, but she is fucking panicking she is hysterical and Bob Falfa seems to have hurt his arm you know but he's alive they pull him out everybody get away from the car it's gonna blow is what they say no reason for it to but it explodes or it goes up into a big ball of flames um you know there might be some fuel issues or whatever the case is we don't get the details on Falfa's car we don't need them some things are, are better left shrouded in mystery. You know, and Steve is like, I'll never leave you, Lori. You know, don't leave me, Steven. Don't leave me. She's scared. Ultimately, she's scared. And she's scared because of the crash. She's scared because he's leaving. He's like, I'll never leave you. And John is just with Falfa, but they're not friends. So he hands him his cowboy hat and he says, like, sucks, man. You know, like, eh, what are you going to do? And he walks off with Terry. And he tells Terry in a moment of, of vulnerability, he's, he's, really, he's really been opening up tonight. And he says, I was losing, man. And Terry's like, what? Now, you know, there's context behind this too. John Milner has a small block car, right? That is a smaller displacement 
engine, a 5.3 liter, roughly. That's what a 327 kind of figures out to somewhere. And Bob Falfa, based on the audio, seemed to have a big block car, right? Which is a, a much higher displacement motor. Something like in, you know, six liters, eight liters, somewhere in there, right? I don't think they made them eight liter back then, but probably around six liters. 6.8 liter, maybe a 400, I think it was a 6.8. Something like that. It doesn't matter, but... You know, he's a, a small block guy in what is now becoming a big block world. And that'll that'll actually continue to happen and continue to evolve. And there will be a horsepower race in in the next few years. Well, not the next few, but yeah, yeah kind of the next few. The Tri-5s kind of start that up. The, the Barracuda comes up in 65 as well. Or not the Tri-5s, but the, you know, the, the Chevelles and stuff like that. Malibu. The SS cars. Anyway, there are pros and cons to having a big block or a small block, but at the end of the day, it all costs about the same amount of money, and there's just money in preparation and design and thoughts and process, but that is the real world. In fiction, in fiction, John is coming face-to-face -face with his own impermanence, right? With the realization of his own mortality, that time is the great equalizer. He now knows that he can easily be one of those cars in the graveyard that used to be the fastest car in the valley, so on and so forth. Anything could happen. And he covers it up, though. He says, yeah, we'll take them all, Toad, right? Because Terry kind of talks him back into, you know, living that versus getting out of that and, and trying to find the life outside of that. But Terry doesn't know because Terry Terry's in his own kind of bubble, right, which he kind of peeked out of maybe that night but he understands that there's other factors than he I don't know I don't know what Terry thinks honestly but they're, Terry's 17 or whatever at the end he doesn't know shit I don't know shit when I was 17 and I can prove that to you by how little I know when I'm 30 whatever so it's all the more tragic even though it was not the tragedy of John Milner, it is the legend of John Milner. That he is killed by a drunk driver. That he is a person who is generally smart and safe and conscientious. And he's generally a good guy. And he is killed by a drunk driver. In 1964. Two years from then. Still very young. And now I'm wondering, is he even younger than they are? Or did he just drop out? And it just occurred to me right now. I always thought that he was older. I always thought that he was older. He says, uh, you guys were kids. Uh, you know, the hot fops were kids. You guys just got out of there. But he could have, um, you know, maybe gone to vocational at age 15 or whatever. That used to be a thing where you go to two years of high school and you get a vocation essentially and I haven't seen that that was not a thing when I was in school as far as I know but it was back in the day but yeah that that saddens me and you know I too know people who have seemed immortal who I grew up with who 
were the legends of our high school, the legends of our, you know, community who came face to face with their mortality and they didn't make it out. And that makes it all the more personal and all the more sad to me. And to be clear, I mean, not like, oh, an existential crisis, like a drunk driver or things like post-traumatic stress, perhaps. And I'm not 100% sure on the last one, but I hadn't the heart to ask. But yeah, it's sad. Getting older is, it's not all roses. But let's go into the adventure of Kurt. And Kurt, by George Lucas's own admission, is the most George Lucas of characters. Kurt on the outset. Kurt initially is not sure that he's even leaving. He is uh, wishy-washing, as Wendy would put it. And he is a textbook romantic, whereas Sean Milner is maybe an actual romantic in the academic sense. Kurt is a textbook romantic, and he's probably read a lot of books, so he's a book romantic. He is looking for that, that love at first sight, that kind of asshole, right? And it is ultimately shallow, but he is a dreamer, and the, kind of those things, they have, to, they have to resolve themselves. You can't meet the dreamer and be like, hey, your dream is shallow and pointless. They have to go on that journey, and Kurt goes on that journey, right? So Kurt goes to the hop with Steve and Lori, and it must be a little weird to be friends with your little sister's boyfriend, just saying. I mean, Steve's an all right guy, by all accounts, and they've probably gone to school together for a while, but it's just, it seems odd. But on the way to the hop, he sees the blonde and the white T-bird, and I believe that is how she is billed as character, played by Suzanne Summers, young Suzanne Summers. Uh, radiant, pre-nose job, doesn't matter, radiant. Her audition, and she, she, she tells us about it in the, uh, so the, the, the casting process was very interesting. You should definitely watch the, the hour and 15 minutes of, of making of if you get a disc copy. But her audition in particular was funny. Uh, she walks in and she's in this huge audition with a bunch of blondes walks in and says well she's like in, initially she's like I'm, I'm never gonna get you know this part i'm paying for parking right now remember parking meters that was a thing she was an actor so she was low on money she's like after paying for parking and all that i'm not gonna be able to afford dinner tonight you know uh she probably missed a shift uh she's probably in food service because that kind of shift work helps actors be actors and She's upset and she's frantic because she sees all of this competition. Walks up to the casting director and she's like, hey, look, I can't, can't really afford the parking and all this stuff. You know, is this going to take long? What's the deal? Casting director's like, hold on. Goes, talks to somebody. He's like, hey, just come in. Right? She goes in and she sits down and George Lucas looks at her and says, can you drive? She says, yes. And he's like, 
All right, great. Thank you. Sends her out. And she's like, there's no fucking way I got this. And she gets home and the phone is fucking ringing. And they're like, hey, you got the part. So that's how George Lucas has been casting most of these. The, the, the casting stories are pretty odd, but he was spending like five minutes per uh, casting a bunch of kids, and they actually casted for a long time. You know, and, and the casting director was also on the making of and stuff like that, so it's, it's a really interesting uh, behind the scenes. So Kurt sees the blonde and the white 56 T-Bird. And the Thunderbird was Ford's premier car at the time. And it was for a while, it had a lot of good technology that that maybe a lot of people never acknowledged. But it's Suzanne Summers. She looks over. She sees Kurt sitting in the backseat of his sister's car, his sister's Edsel. And she whispers, I love you. And then she drives off. This is the Kurt MacGuffin. This motivates Kurt from here on out for everything that he does. Now, I don't... I have very... How shall I say it? Um, it seems dumb that he would believe this. But I am very cynical myself. So, who knows? But... He does. He believes this. And I think she might have whispered hi, Kurt, before she said I love you so so that he knows that she knows who he is. So she now becomes this, like, uh, this kind of, like, treasure, almost. Like Indiana Jones going after the Lost Ark. So they go to the dance. He really didn't do much there, but he... Leaves the dance to go to his old locker, tries to open the lock, right? He's being all nostalgic at such a young age, like classically nostalgic, like if he was a fucking 40-year-old. And he finds, he finds Mr. Wolf, and Mr. Wolf is maybe a couple years older, maybe a couple years older, but still very young. And he... He seems like he fell into being a teacher. He is clearly overstepping many bounds with the young, uh, the, the, the female students, right? And I say, I say clearly uh, because he, you know, calls them sexy young things or whatever the case. And... He's one step away from, from Woodard in, in Dazed and Confused. Or, or maybe Woodard is one step away from him because he is, he is actually more gross in that he is a teacher. Woodard does not profess to be a teacher or, or any kind of official in any capacity to young women. But Wolf is like a dark reflection uh, in a mirror darkly, right? Through a lens darkly. We see Curtis. Uh, we see Wolf. And that's like 
medium interesting that his name is Mr. Wolf. But, you know, it's just one of those things. Um, he goes outside, or he's still outside, I guess, from talking to Mr. Uh, Wolf. And he comes across Wendy, and Wendy is an, an old flame, right? Wendy can represent this comfortable feeling, this feeling of home, right? And she kind of points out to him, you know, she's like, oh, he's like, oh, maybe I'll stay. And she's like, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, was she washing in JC, junior college? I thought JC was the name of a junior college, but it's probably just generic junior college. She kind of represents that. And, you know, they're kind of getting a little romantic and, and they're in Bobby Tucker's car, right? So it's a little, you know, it's, it's not, it's high school. I guess is just the way to to put that, but you know, Bobby's being cool about it, um, you know, because it's high school and you, you kind of have to have some latitude there. But you know, Bobby also tells Kurt that the the blonde and the T bird is the wife of a jewelry store owner, right? So Steve and, and Lori just flat didn't believe him, and now we're hearing that. She's a uh, she's married to a, a wealthy man, and Kurt's not okay with that idea, and it kind of manifests itself. He he starts to get a little self destructive in in thinking that that's true. He I don't know if it's it's that he got upset or that he just can't stand the comfort or the consistency, but he uh, he wants to mess it up. You know, Wendy's clearly into him. Wendy's clearly into him and and you know this could be a good night and he he offends bobby in the eyes of kip pullman she says introduce me and and he says that uh you know bobby uh trembles at the at his rippling the sight of his rippling biceps and she's like whatever you know or he's like whatever and, and bobby's obviously mortified and you know very upset kicks him out of the car right wendy's like sorry you're a dick. See you around. And here, Kurt sees the white T-bird, and he starts to run after it. And then uh, the music gets kind of everywhere, right? And he ends up in the middle of an intersection at a crossroads. And maybe that crossroads is the Wendy route or the blonde and the T-bird route. Maybe it's the college route versus the stay-at-home route. It's 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 pretty interesting um how you can hash out this symbolism. But wishy washing, he comes across the pharaohs, or the pharaohs come across him, right? And the pharaohs are ostens ostensibly a gang of some type. You could call them a car club, but that would be being generous. Uh but they have the really cool jackets they're kind of mean looking dudes uh joe played by bo hopkins is an awesome awesome character and joe is awesome ants ants is the big menacing pale one and carlos is the small ethnic one right 
and that is kind of how they are. And there's three of them. I don't know if that has a meaning. I don't know if they're like the three wise men visiting Jesus or something, but they're called the pharaohs or, you know, ghosts of Christmas or something. But the pharaohs are another look at what Kurt could become staying home. It, it could be fun, but it's not productive and it won't take him anywhere. And Kurt essentially needs to help them rob the arcade mini golf go-kart place um, with which he was very familiar with the owners who, and as a matter of fact, they recommended him for the scholarship to go to college. And like, that's some last Jedi shit. Like he, he goes along with this robbery and, uh, you know, he makes some, uh, some innuendos and, but, in doing this, he kind of seals the deal. He's like, I can't, I can't be here tomorrow to catch the hell for this. I need to get the fuck out. That's some Last Jedi shit, man. Let the past die. Kill it if you have to. He can't be around. He has to go to college now at this point. I mean, the Legend of the Blonde does build, though. Joe has insisted now that that she is a high-priced prostitute. Which is it is similarly unfathomable that this woman would, would say, Hi, Kurt, I love you. And that she's a prostitute or that she's the wife of a, a jeweler. But also that he doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know who she is. And it's just like, what? But that... Remember the thing with the, you know, have we met at Mel's? And I said, no, I'd remember. That's kind of where I'm going. Like, I, I would remember had I met Suzanne Summer somewhere. You know, but the adventure, it, it's got to keep going, man. It's got to keep going. Joe um has been increasingly weird. And uh, they see a cop parked out at uh, Jerry's Cherry. I'm assuming it's a soda fountain. And Joe says, I got an idea. I got a good idea. And I love the way he delivers that line. I feel like it's perfect. <laughs> and he walks Kurt over to the parking lot, uh, ostensibly behind the cop car, with a big roll of, of steel cable and a hook. And, the, you know, this is legendary, right? And he makes Kurt hook up that cable to the rear axle of the cop car and they drive past the cop car, they speed past the cop car to um, to goad it into chasing them and in doing so it rips off the rear axle from the car, right? This is apparently a very famous stunt and it was even on Mythbusters and you, you can actually do that. that. That wouldn't happen. And Mythbusters tried it on a Crown Victoria which... I mean, essentially was the, a very similar style of suspension and body. The Panther platform is the last, um, you know, body on frame kind of car ever made, as far as I recall. So you can't do that. That, that doesn't happen. But for the movie, for the adventure, this is almost... George said it was a documentary, but then they put these things in there. 
And then it's like, what if it's not a documentary? What if it is the the clearest recollection of what happened? Because even then, you always embellish something. You always change something. So then he's essentially accepted into the pharaohs at this point. That's been his initiation. Rob some shit. Do this thing to the cop car, right? And, you know, Joe's talking to him, and he's like, well, you know, blood initiation. He's like, what's that? You know, I got to think about it. And he's like, well, we got the car coat. But he, I think he said car coat. And I had to look up if a car coat was a thing, because a car cult seems more like it to me, because they got a sick fucking Mercury, right? They have a Mercury. Um, I think in Vice City, the Cubans, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, I should say. In Grand Theft Auto Vice City, the, the Cuban gang drives a car uh, very similar called a Hermes. It looks like a Mercury because they're both Greek gods. Um, but, you know, very chopped, lowered, that kind of thing. This is the kind of look that their Mercury has. Or Ford with the Mercury grill or whatever the case was. I'm not actually 100% on their car. But it's definitely not a, a hot rod per se, but more of a low and slow. So I thought he said car cult because that made more sense to me than car coat, but they are wearing the fucking cool Pharaoh's jackets. So, I mean, you know, that's just one of those things. I guess that's like the, the hot rodding and the, the tiki culture, like kind of era of mishmash. But that's neither here nor there. That's not, that's not the big part of this. Um, the big part of the adventure of Kurt and the, the one character who is not a main character, but is a fucking main character. Holy shit. Is this a main character who is not a main character? The thesis, the, you know, the pivot, the, what was the epicenter? Of this movie is the myth of the Wolfman. Wolfman Jack is all over this fucking movie. He has the first spoken line of the movie, as far as I know, except for the XERB call sign jingle. And they stated that uh, about 10% of, of the Wolfman in the movie is original to the movie, as far as the Wolfman recordings. Uh, but the rest is from previous recordings that he had done. But this is, um, this is a phenomenon that we do not understand. We being people my age, which I'm already in my 30s and younger. Like, you don't get it. Or maybe you do. I just thought of a good parallel. But... George Lucas mentions that Wolfman was a huge character because people had this relationship with radio DJs that was so prevalent. It was to the point that it was easier for people to relate to the, the radio DJ than the person next to them in the car, than their, their partner or their family. In the script, it says, and I quote, The Wolfman is an unseen companion to all the kids. Witty and knowledgeable about the trivia that counts. He's their best friend, confidant, and guardian angel. 
So that kind of begs the comparison to the radio DJ in Vanishing Point, another fantastic movie about cars, well, not featuring cars, I guess. Not about cars, featuring cars. Um, just like two-lane blacktop is not about cars, it is featuring cars. But this is like, what if, you know, your favorite streamer, right, was was with you all day in the car everywhere? Like, what if I had Foxine over under on Twitch just hanging out with me in my ear, you know? What if, uh, you know, Daniel Fenner was just hanging around all the time? What if? That's kind of the same relationship. We have uh, streamers that have 100,000 people watching them. The Shroud, Ninja, um, Shatter, 2K, whatever. And it seems similar, even though the the relationship with the radio DJ was very one-way. But you could call in, right? You could be on the call-in show. And you could talk to the DJ, right? What if what if I could call in and, and talk to day nine? Would I would it be the same thing? I think so. Uh, but for us we use Twitch chat, we use Twitter. And that's just our our mechanism for that. And in a way, maybe it's more immediate. Maybe you can split attention further. Um But like I said, you know, in the script, Terry uh praised the Wolfman at one point. And that's just that's the craziest thing. Like I ask myself sometimes, what would day nine do? Is that, that's kind of the same thing, you know? So many characters also, uh, perpetuate the myth of the wolf man. You know, Carol, when she's talking to John Milner, she's like, my mom won't let me listen to wolf man at home, you know, because he's a Negro. He broadcasts from a plane that just flies in circles. That is blatantly some 12 year old. I heard this in school shit like what that doesn't even make sense but this is also pre-civil rights so him being a negro a, a, a negro geez i don't know why i said it like that but him being a negro was a was kind of a bad thing to a lot of people and that's insane but that's an insane sign of the times but the the the, the plain thing is just this kid shit like it's like fucking crazy kids dream only a kid would think of that, right? And they'll tell their friends, wouldn't it be cool if Wolfman broadcasts from a plane that just flies in circles? And then it'd be like, well, yeah, that would be cool. And apparently, since it's XERB, it's it's a Mexican, so it's a border blaster, but they're in Northern California. It's complicated. You know, it could be syndicated. They don't know. They're from a small town. Carlos says that when he graduates, he wants to, and I quote, be a Wolfman, end quote. What the fuck does that mean, Carlos? What is what does it mean to be a Wolfman? Do you think there are many Wolfman Jacks that there will be a Wolfman Carlos or a Wolfman Charlie, as it were? And he's like, oh yeah, he broadcasts out of Mexico. But now here's an interesting thing, Joe. Joe is maybe the most wise out of all, almost all the other characters. And Joe's like. There's a, there's a station right outside of town. That's where he broadcasts from, from you know. And and I looked into it, uh, and Wolfman was very syndicated, so it's definitely possible that he could be broadcasting from there to the rest of the world, right? They used to do broadcasts over phone to transmitters and things like that. Who knows? But I think this is maybe uh, demonstrative of how little 
how little people had seen of the world in this town that they didn't know how that worked. Carlos is like, nah, man, that's just to fool the cops. They'll never catch the wolf, man. And it's like, what? The cops? The, nobody's going to fool the cops if you're broadcasting all over the fucking place. It's easy to find a broadcast like station. They're huge. They consume epic amounts of power. But these are things that I know as an adult because those things interested me and I've looked into it. But if you're a, a, a 16-year-old and, and you don't know and your parents don't know and nobody knows, how do, you, how do you look that up, right? How do you figure that out? Do you watch it on TV because they don't, there's one channel? What do you do, right? So fucking eventually, once he gets out of the, with the pharaohs, he gets done with the pharaohs, he goes to see the wolfman. Kurt is smart enough to know he's probably in that fucking station out there and he goes to see the wolfman so he drives over there and he goes in and there's a window and there's a, a booth and there's a guy eating popsicles and playing records and he hits on the mic and the, the room mic and he's like hey what are you doing here kid and he's like, I'm, I'm here to talk to the wolfman. And he's like, come around, come around. Comes around, hands him the, th- the note. He's like, I, I, I got to give him this note. I'm headed out of town tomorrow. And, well, the, you know, the radio DJ is like, you know, hey, do you, do you want a popsicle? He goes through his whole thing with a popsicle. And the refrigerator's broken. Got a bunch of popsicles. Have a popsicle. He's eating popsicles. They're melting everywhere. His hands are sticky. And he's like, hold on one second. And he pops in this like a cassette. I'm assuming it's a DAT tape. Well, I don't know that it's a DAT tape, but whatever fucking mechanism of, of cassette that they used back then, right? This huge thing. It's this fucking machine the size of three people. And it's a tape of the Wolfman. And Kurt is just like crestfallen. Like all the piss is taken right out of him. He probably got pale and everything, sweaty. And he's just like, the Wolfman's on tape? And the guy's like, yeah. You know, he's like, ah, I gotta give him this note. And he's like, ah, oh, it's a dedication, dude. I'll get that on you Thursday, Friday. You know, whatever day, days from now. And he tells him, oh, I'm leaving tonight. And he's like, well, if it's possible, I'll, I'll get it on tonight. You know, but... The actual Wolfman is meanwhile kind of behind them on the cassette you know making prank calls and being cool as shit playing all the sick fucking music you know uh kurt's like i don't know if i'm going and the radio dj is like listen there's a big beautiful world out there wolfman has been everywhere and seen everything so many stories so many memories and and here i sit sucking on popsicles Right, And that's not a direct quote, but that's maybe a paraphrasing of it. At least I don't think it's a direct quote because I didn't put quotes around it. But it, Kurt knows at that point, he knows that I could be this Modesto Kurt sitting in a radio station, sticky fingers, popping in tapes over and over. Or 
I could go somewhere. I could be the Wolfman, right? Can I be the Wolfman? And that's like somebody giving you the opportunity to be a streamer. I, I ran out of streamers that everyone would know. Um, the opportunity to give you the chance to be bloody faster, right? She's on, she's on blue microphones boxes. So she helps sell Yetis, sell Yetis. Or Sparks, actually. I think she uses a Spark. Not sure. Anyway. Big time streamer, right? You can go out there, be Dodger. Or do you stay home? And you, you know, transcode that person's videos. What do you do? So Kurt knows. He knows what he's going to do. I think he's decided already. He was decided at the arcade. He's double decided now. But he, he hasn't acknowledged that just yet. He's decided, but he hasn't asked himself the question that he would need to answer. So he leaves. But when he's leaving, he turns around and he hears the radio in the hallway. Here's the wolfman come back on. And he turns around and he sees that that radio DJ with the sticky fingers and the refrigerators f full of melting popsicles is the wolfman. That is actually the wolfman. That man right there is the wolfman. And he sees behind the curtain. He has that realization. He has the sensitivity to understand his position. He understands that the wolfman's advice was from the wolfman. But he has spoken to the oracle, the sage, the patron saint of the youth of his entire world. And he is quadruple decided at that point. And maybe then, maybe finally then, he has asked himself the question and he has given himself the answer. And he knows what he's going to do. But his dedication goes out and he waits at, uh, at Mel's, which they call Burger City. Wolfman calls Burger City, I believe. Waits by the payphone. He says, meet him up or give him a call at uh, Diamond whatever. Phone numbers were different back then. Diamond was an exchange, DIA or whatever the case was. It doesn't make sense to me. I've seen that in Stephen King books as well, notably Hearts in Atlantis. Um, but she calls. She calls. The sun is coming up. Kurt is leaving, quote unquote, in the morning. The sun is coming up at this point. She calls, and she's just being coy. She's like, Kurt? Hello, Kurt? And he's like, hey, how do you know me? You know, Don't worry about it, Kurt. We'll meet up. You know, I cruise 3rd Street. Maybe I'll see you there tomorrow night. And he says, no, I don't think you will. Right? He's just so excited. He's so thrilled. But he knows. He knows. And she just says, Kurt? And he's like, yeah. And she says, goodbye, Kurt. And that's it. And 
Curtis goes off in a nice scene. Uh, Magic Carpet Airlines. Uh, I want to say it's a Boeing airplane. I'm not 100% on that one. But it is uh, touting radar equipped on the door. What a plane, right? But he goes off. He goes in the plane. He says goodbye to everybody. Uh, kind of ignores his sister a little bit, which is a little weird. Not too much, but a bit. The parents kind of don't factor into it because the, the, the parents don't matter. If it was me leaving, my parents would have been all over me. And it just would have been weird having friends and stuff there. Um, but Curtis is a writer living in Canada. And he is essentially George Lucas who went to Southern California. Not back east, maybe. I don't... I think he went to USC, but... He became a filmmaker. He became an artist. So Curtis was ostensibly dodging the draft... But his adventure, the adventure of Kurt, the myth of the Wolfman, begets him ostensibly a peaceful life, right? So I'm going to take a sip of water. And I forgot to mention that in the airplane, in the calm blue sky, Curtis... He looks out, he looks down to that long straight country road and he sees that white T-bird and, and he smiles. And that T-bird's going where he's going. And maybe that's adventure, maybe that's possibility, right? It's something. I'm not I'm not quite sure what it is, but it's it's something. So that's been American graffiti. It's been a long journey. But it was a journey. Um like I said, I've seen this movie a lot. So Yeah, it's something. Um Just a side note, I would like to mention that I will be appearing on the uh, Sunshine Summit 2019 for March. Uh, the Sunshine Summit is a live stream event for about a week. Yeah, it takes place over about a week, maybe a little more. Uh, hosted by Heather Welsh, lovely New Zealand podcaster, host of Sunshine and Power Cuts. And you can find more information at sunshinesummit.live. There will be a guest list schedule and live streams there. And there will be a live chat and we're going to be interacting with people. So it's going to be a live event, right? And it'll be recorded and, and there will be, you know, uploaded to YouTube for posterity. And you can subscribe over on YouTube. The channel is sunpowerpodyt. Right, SunPowerPod YT, as in YouTube, and uh, that's going to be a fun time. I've known Heather for a little while. I think it's going to be a great conversation. If you are a fan of the show, I hope to see you there. Uh, I want to say that um, my episode is going to be 
Tuesday, uh, March 12th at around 8 p.m. Eastern. So, you know, there's some calculations that you might have to do if you're in a different part of the world. But like I said, looking super forward to it. Very excited. Come see us. We're going to have a good time. And this is actually the season one finale. I am, I am done. I am spent. I need some rest. The schedule has been grueling. It's hard to, to balance this, but it is hard not to because it is so much fun. It is a genuine pleasure to be talking about these movies that I, that I like so much. Um, you know, maybe some that I don't, but to look back, to understand, to reflect, to kind of understand more. So this is season one being over, but this is not the end. I'm not sure when I'm coming back with season two. I'm not going to lie. I need to maybe bank a couple episodes so that I can have a more normal schedule, not as, not as pressure filled because to release one of these every week is nigh impossible. I have to be ahead of the game because it's just so much work in, in pre-production and production. I said that I was going to keep track of how many hours it took me to make this podcast. And I didn't because I'm dumb and I'm forgetful, but I would say it must've been like eight to 10 hours to make this two part American graffiti thing in total. That is watching the movie, taking notes, um, you know, doing preparations for recording, recording, and then editing. And it might be more because I'm not even done yet. I haven't edited it yet. Edited it. That's a weird word. I haven't done the editing yet. So it's been fun. It's been awesome. And I'm going to come back. I'm trying to figure out just how to make my quality of life improvements. I'd like to think that in April I'll be back. Right. And that's kind of tentatively what I'm looking for. But I don't know. I genuinely don't. Um, you can just kind of keep an eye on the podcast in your podcatcher. Subscribe, rate, comment. It's on iTunes. It's on Google. It's on Stitcher. It's on, you can find it in your Pocket Cast, your Podcast Addict, whatever. It's everywhere. It should be anyway. So please comment, subscribe, listen, tweet at me. Best way to talk to me, tweet at me. At CoolMarkD, cool the C and Mark with a K. Um, come April, I will probably tweet out a, Hey, this is back. So there's that. I mean, it feels a little weird tweeting that because it just feels weird. I'm, you know, but I'm going to do it. I've never been one for, for self-promotion, but I'm going to have to start. Right. So I will, I will see you guys then, uh, until then have a good, at least March, please come by the sunshine summit live and, and see us then. Once again, 9th through the 16th at uh, sunshinesummit.live.
Hello, it's Heather from the Sunshine and Power Cuts podcast, in association with Geeks Rising from the 9th to the 16th of March, or 10th to the 17th if you're here in New Zealand, 2019, we are hosting the first 2019 Sunshine Summit. It's a week of live streams with amazing content creators and the theme of celebrating connections. All of the details for the upcoming summit, as well as replays from our previous events and where the live streams will be happening, can be found at sunshinesummit.live. A huge thank you to the patrons of Sunshine and Power Cuts for making that possible. So check it out, and if you know the guests, we'd love for you to come and celebrate with us. And if they are new to you, come along, learn more about them, and we look forward to celebrating connections with you. Have you ever been reading through a stack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Sarkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. So whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.